This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Bernard Chazelle. He is Eugene Higgins, professor of computer science at Princeton University. I spoke with him on November 4th in a live conversation at the Jerome L. Green Performance Space in Lower Manhattan. You can download the MP3 of our produced show with Bernard Chazelle at onbeing.org. Good evening. Uh, From all of us here at WQXR, we are thrilled to welcome Krista Tippett and her guest, Eugene Higgins, Professor of Computer Science at Princeton University, Bernard Chazelle, to the Jerome L. Green Performance Space as part of our Bach Festival, Bach Stock. Krista and Bernard will be out in a few minutes, but before we hear their conversation about the cosmology of Bach, we thought you should first hear some of Bach's music. So we asked our friend, the pianist Anna Polonsky, to perform some Bach for us tonight. The New York Times has called Polanski a musician of exceptional refinement. She's a much in demand soloist and chamber musician. In addition to performing, she also serves on the piano faculty at Vassar College. So please welcome Anna Polanski now to the Jerome L. Green performance space, and she'll play the first movement of Bach's Partita, number two in C minor. Thank you. 
Hello. Good evening. Thank you, Anna Polonsky and Graham Parker of WQXR. Um, thanks also to Martha Bonta, who made all this happen. Uh, it's so great to be here in the green space. Uh, it feels like just yesterday, Graham and I and Elizabeth Sobel, who can't be here tonight, but who's with us in spirit, were talking about this Bach month and how we wanted to do something unexpected and something fun. And I think Bernard Chazelle um, is going to bring that. <laughs> um, and I'm happy that we've been able to bring Bach's music into the room with us as well. We will also end with uh, Bach's monumental Chacon for solo violin performed by Tim Fain. Um, we are going. We are recording this. Uh, I think Graham said uh, for recording for on being. So I will do a radio. I will have a radio moment in the middle. And I'll just want to start by introducing Bernard Chazelle, who is Eugene Higgins Professor of Computer Science at Princeton University, with a specialty in computational geometry. He works with algorithms, a field he believes to hold promise of a scientific revolution. A key theme of his blog, uh, which is called A Tiny Revolution, is also his love of music. He writes uh, in a most original way about Eric Clapton and Eminem and Thelonious Monk and Amy Winehouse and Bob Dylan and especially Johann Sebastian Bach. Bernard Chazelle makes observations like this. Millions of years of evolution have turned our ears into a giant logarithmic table. He also says things like, Bach, the most human of all composers, gets to your soul through your body. Or this, Bach, like Ellington, doesn't do despair. So I think if we get to the end of this conversation with a capacity to hear Bach, in some way, as you do, then our musical lives will be that much more adventurous. So thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I'm curious about the earliest, uh, the earliest roots of your passion for both computer science and music. Um, I wonder just to start, if, um, was there a religious background to your childhood, and, and was Bach in that religious background? Okay, um, thanks for asking the question. Before I answer, perhaps I'd like to make a quick comment about what we just heard. Um, a man named Jane Forkel, the first biographer of Bach, was writing about this particular piece, which is very, very difficult to play. And he said that anybody who can play this piece to a high standard, obviously he was thinking of Anna Polanski, <laughs> will make a fortune in this world. <laughs> I hope she, she hears this. So at least we've, at least this evening, at least that's one thing we will have established. Uh, her future. And now to answer your question, I grew up in, in Paris, in France, and uh, my mother, uh, so I came from a family where the religion came from my mother, very religious, and um, my grandfather, her father was a church organist. Mm -hmm. And my household had no music, basically, and I had a passion for music, but my grandfather gave me a whole stack of of bass, mostly organ music in 78 RPM, which tells you how young I am. And, and so very early on, I listened to that. It was probably my first exposure to music, probably not the most common. And, and uh, well, then I moved away and did other things. Uh, but I've always, you know, had this strange feeling that when I listen to Bach, 
he's the only composer who I think really has written this music for me. And I'm sure everybody feels the same way. But in my case, I wonder to what extent like a monkey's condition upon certain behavior, if you give him enough peanuts or something, because I had this exposure very early on, which was very exclusive. Mm-hmm. I didn't listen to much else. Whether my ears were just not somehow, yeah, conditioned. So because it speaks to me in a way no other music does. So. Mm-hmm. And and you write a lot about your pleasure, your pleasure in music and overwhelming pleasure, and particularly in Bach. And I almost feel like um, for you, um, pleasure in music is is kind of a compass. It's like it's a it's a true thing, um, almost as true as numbers. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we should talk about this. Yeah, <clears throat> the um, Bach as a cosmologist. But I'd like to. To, to, to fully answer the question uh, you asked earlier, which I don't think I did, which is this religious aspect okay. of... Um, <clears throat> I was a pretty rebellious child, and my teachers didn't like me very much. It was reciprocal, so it's not... <laughs> and in particular, my Sunday school teacher really hated me. And, and I think... Well, they had reasons, too. I mean, I was a bit of a jackass, probably, but... But I did ask, I think, the right questions. But in the Catholic tradition, you're not supposed to ask questions. So I mean, I remember they would say, and now let's pray. And I would ask, I was a tiny boy, and I, and I would ask, what am I supposed to do? Just speak to Jesus. Okay, so can I ask Jesus for a bicycle? No, you're not supposed to ask Jesus for a bicycle. Just tell Jesus all the bad things you've done. <laughs> and I thought, well, there are two problems with this. Number one is. If Jesus is God, he knows all the bad things I've done. Why do I have to tell him? And then the second part was, the second problem was that I couldn't come up with anything bad I had done. But my brothers, I could make a long list. (laughs) So if Jesus needed a reminder, I was ready to help him with that, to provide him with, you know. And and in fact, so I remember arguing with the Sunday school teacher and saying, and if Jesus punishes my brothers for all the bad things they have done, then my faith will be strengthened. <laughs> and I thought I was asking the wrong questions. But I think, maybe, well, I think these are interesting questions. I still don't know the answer, actually. <laughs> okay, how did you get into computer science? Where'd that By come elimination, in? really. By what? Uh, first, I want to be a musician, but I quickly realized... I had to compete with people like but, Anna Polanski, and I couldn't you, do it. But so, you do play, so the, so I that play the guitar. You play yeah, the I play, blues and fact, rock bands. I play the shakan. Well, I yeah. play, playing is, uh, I'm stretching the word here. I massacred, I, I butchered the shakan in my own particular way. And I played pretty much everything. I mean, the blues, jazz, rock. I was in rock band. I, so I butchered pretty much everything. I even composed La Cantata and things like this. And, um, but I was never good enough. I didn't think I'd be a good musician in all aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing, performing, composing. So that's why, to me, Bach is it's hard to explain because I, I work in mathematics mostly and I have great admirations from all kinds of mathematicians, like the true geniuses of history. And even though I can only, in my dream, aspire to do that kind of work, I understand what it is. I understand what it is to be Gauss. I, I'm not Gauss. I never will be. But I understand to, what it to is be what? to be. Sorry. So Gauss is often considered the greatest mathematician who okay. ever lived. All right. uh, or Pythagoras or Euclid. Oh, you'll take your favorite mathematician. 
But Bach, I don't. That's the thing. In other words, it's not just that I'm not gifted enough or something. It's another dimension. It's like if I met somebody from a different planet. Mm -hmm. And there's something that, and it's a paradox, because I think Bach is the most human of composers. So obviously there's a contradiction there. How can we be both the most human and be completely out of this world? In a way where... um, Well, let me ask you this. I've... I've always been so intrigued by this mysterious connection between mathematics and music, um, music and numbers. And I've asked people to explain it to me across the years, and I, I kind of just grasp it around the edges. Um, you've talked about computer science as a profound window through which to view the world. I mean, you add you know, the, the notion of algorithm um, to mathematics, and I, I wonder, you know, if, if you could talk to us about is 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 your life uh, as a computer scientist also a window onto music or onto Bach, um, or, or or are these two things just kind of in conversation and interplay in your life? Yeah, I think that's exactly the la- the latter. They are in conversation. And for example, because I'm naturally interested by mathematics, and well, that's what I do for a living. But I like to analyze Bach. You know, to go into it's complicated music, and and there's a whole logical system which I like naturally because that's who I am. Right. It's not necessary at all. It's just curiosity, but I don't think it's necessary to my. I mean, in fact, I would say that the the only way to to understand Bach is to listen to him, and, and there's nothing else needed. There's absolutely no need to study anything about it. Just listen to the thing over and over again, and finally uh, it will come. Now, mathematics and, and um, music, yeah, I've thought a lot about this, and I'm not sure I have anything intelligent to say. Now, obviously there are, so of all the arts, um, m- music is the only one that is purely physical. Yeah. Maybe abstract art now is, but, I mean, b- but literature, a play, a poem. So to speak about music is very difficult because we can speak about Macbeth. I mean, at least there's a story there. We can talk about the story, and, and then we can try to go beyond it. There's a painting where you can discuss what's going on on the canvas. But the Ode to Joy, if Beethoven didn't tell us it was about joy, it could be about hamburgers, for all we know. I mean, it's just music. And so, so it's not a language in any way, shape, or form. And yet... Of course, music has little figments of fragments of language because if you play uh, the Western uh, standard, you know, so Western music has certain signifiers like cadences and dissonance, and, and, and there are certain things that indicate motion. So, so you can create situate moods that will kind of appeal to certain mental dispositions, but it's very fragile. Ultimately, since music is so powerful and so physical, it has you ultimately have to go back to physics to, in ways you don't have to uh-huh. understand. So you see, if you read uh, a poem, first of all, you have to understand language. So you have to have these very higher order uh, mental functions, cognitive functions, to understand uh, what the poem is about. Presumably, you need some experience in life if it's about death or love or... or, or Envy. Well, you need to understand these sentiments to make sense of the poem. But music doesn't work like this because, mm-hmm. especially Western music, um, I shouldn't say I shouldn't say especially. Actually, that's not true. That's uh, universal. That that um, you see, I was talking about 
evolution has given us a logarithm table. Yes. You know, yeah, I mean, so evolution has turned our ears into a giant logarithm yeah, table. Yeah, well, that's what so, it is. Yeah, so, what is Be- so what do you mean by that? Because what I mean by the this... The way we process music. No, when we hear music, we hear you know, sound waves, so air bounces around at a certain frequency. It could be very quick, very, could be very slow. And your brain takes the logarithm of this frequency. That's what it does. Nobody knows exactly how it does that. So logarithm is a function that has all kinds of property, a mathematical thing that has all kinds of properties. And your brain automatically does that. It's not like you have to be trained. That's what your brain does. That's how it processes sounds. And so once you've done that, then there are relations between sounds which we know sound good, not because of cultural reasons. So for example, when you play a C a chord, a C triad for, a triad, for example, you know, C-E-G. We like C-E-G. It's very common Western music. But it's true in all. This is universal to, to, to the human brain, why we like it. We can explain this because it's these small fractions. There was, uh, the frequencies are in certain fractions. And there's only so many small fractions. You know, there's one half, three halves, four fifths. You see, I mean, there are... Then you start having big fractions with big numbers on the numerator denominator. So when you make fractions with with small numbers, like 2 over 3, 3 over 2, 1 over 4, 3 over 5, when you start listing them, everyone will give you a chord that sounds good. And it sounds good because they're small. But there are only so many small. And so So the basic chord structure comes from physics. It's not a choice. Here's something you wrote. Um, if Jay-Z's My First Song Rocks My World, it's because a bluesy F-sharp minor resonance physically rocks my auditory cortex. <laughs> uh, that's, one, that's one way to put it. Not, not, <laughs> not sure Jay-Z would put it that way. But, um, so, all right, so this idea of small fractions, I want to talk about this because this idea that music is the most um, physical art form, yeah. and you have, you have observed that... Um, that it's the small fractions uh, that make music the physical art form it is, yeah. and that no one is more amazing at small fractions than Bach. Yeah, so um, let's, let me try to unpack yeah. uh, this. It's, um, <clears throat> um, Can I just say, I, I, you know, interviewing you is, I feel, is how I feel when I'm interviewing a string theorist, where I'm just... Oh, no. Where it, I, it's no, that where bad. I, well, <laughs> kind of. Um, <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. It's where where I, sure. I don't, you know, we don't all speak this language. Um, so, yes, interpret, translate. Oh, strings. But a guitar has strings. So, yes, maybe it's um, a violin has strings, a piano has strings. So maybe it's string theory. Yes. Um, <laughs> it is. Maybe that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, now you got me all frazzled. Um, so, um, maybe I can start with a little story. Yeah. To, to, to get into this, and because it, it's a complex, I mean, there are many possible answers, but I'd like to distinguish Western music from the rest. There's something distinctive about it, and that has to do with history in Europe. That so, I've tried to say in my own confusing way, uh, probably that there's some, something universal about music in all cultures because it has to do with the human brain, which is the same for anybody on Earth. And that has to do with the ratios between frequencies. Okay, so these small fractions. That's true in all cultures. But here's something that is not true in all cultures. 
is the concept of transposition. When you look at a piano, you look at the keyboard, it cries out transposition. And transposition means what? It means that you try to sing something that's written in C, but then your voice cannot carry that tune because it's too low. So you want to transpose it. You want to play the same thing, just up, maybe to D or to E or something like this. And because of choral music, you know, early in the Middle Ages, there was a great need to be able to transpose. So when they started uh, making instruments, in particular choir instruments, like the piano is a good example, which are accompaniment instruments, not solo instruments, they had to be able to transpose, okay? Now, some other cultures don't do that. In, in, you know, lots of Eastern music, like Indian music, that does not transpose. Or even when you play bluegrass and you play harmonica. Right. You change, you get a different harmonica whether you're playing in E or playing in G or playing in C or whatever. But a piano, you don't change the piano when you change the key. So you have to accommodate chords like C, E, G, and you have to accommodate the possibility of doing transposition. Here's a problem. These two things are impossible. They're incompatible. You have to choose one or the other. I mean, this is mathematics. This is not culture. This is just impossible to get both of them. And so... To get both transposition and... And, and chords. So this piano, for example, which is most likely tuned toward what's called equal temperament, has wrong chords. I mean, assuming it's well-tuned, we can come up with, with various chords, which will sound wrong. Not because the piano is not well-tuned, because it's impossible to get chords to sound perfect if you're going to have transposition. It's just impossible. I mean, you could, put, you, you, you could tune this entire piano in C, but then you could not play, uh, for example, you couldn't play what we just heard, which doesn't mm -hmm. matter. So, um, so that, that, that's a big dilemma, that, big dilemma that, that Western music has had to face for hundreds of years. So if you play a violin, you don't have that problem, or if you play a barbershop music, you don't have that problem because there's no frets. And frets are invented for transposition. So a piano, right. a guitar, you know, those things, those instruments, which are mostly accompaniment uh, uh, instruments. So if you hear a concerto for piano, typically everybody follows the piano, and as a result, everybody is wrong. If the piano was not there, they could actually all play perfectly good music in the key that they've chosen. But because there's a piano, everything is wrong. Now, we Westerners are not very good at telling that because we've been so conditioned in not seeing the mistakes. But if you ask Eastern musicians, they can spot it immediately. They say, oh, what's this? And no, oh, sorry, we're, we're trying to do transposition, okay? So we're trying to do, I know we shouldn't. Now, in mathematics, this is very interesting because I have to draw a parallel to mathematics. There's a very profound reason why you cannot transpose and have chords at the same time. There's going to be a conflict. You cannot have both perfectly. You have to compromise. And that has to do with number theory. You know, like the prime numbers, mm -hmm. like some of the hardest problems in mathematics. I, I know prime numbers. You know prime yeah. numbers. Yeah. <laughs> now, you're supposed to say, I know my prime numbers. <laughs> I know, you know your prime numbers. Great. So, some of the hardest questions in in mathematics come from number theory, which is a theory of prime numbers. For example, something called the Riemann hypothesis, which is an unproven uh, conjecture. It could be false, we don't know, but maybe it's correct. People believe that it's correct. Most people believe that it's correct, which is roughly that the prime numbers are kind of random. It's like God tossed them at random. Now, why is it so hard to prove? For a simple reason, 
well, it's not so simple, but the intuition is very simple. It's because, you know, like some mathematicians joke about prime numbers should never be added. Because a prime number is defined by multiplication. I mean, the concept of a prime number is defined by multiplication. You cannot divide it, but division and multiplication are the same thing. But when you ask a question about how the prime numbers are ordered along the line of, uh, along the integers, you're asking questions about addition. One plus one plus one plus one plus one, that's how you get the numbers. And so that problem is something, you're asking a question that involves multiplication and addition. Mm -hmm. If you had just had multiplication, mathematics would be easy. If you just had addition, mathematics would be easy. But because we put addition and multiplication, it's like putting chocolate and salt in the same dish, everything becomes much trickier, much more difficult. Now, why that is so difficult to reconcile multiplication in addition is exactly the same reason why transposition, which would be addition, and having cores, which would be multiplication, is very difficult. And does all of this somehow come back to small yeah. fractions and bombs? So, yeah, so, wow. So the well-tempered clavier, which is this famous piece by, which is, um, a lot of music by wrote was intended as, as uh, like homework assignments, like practice. They're not intended as, as, as concert pieces. Um, so, so that particular thing, you know, there are 12 keys in the Western scale. There are 12 keys, but there's major and minor, so that's 24. And he wrote a prelude and a fugue for each one, so that's 48. So he, and so there are four of them in the key of C, and then four of them in the key of C sharp, and four of them in the key of D. Why? Now, there are two reasons for this. The first one is obvious. The second is interesting. So the obvious one is simply because this is meant as practice for students. So, of course, a student, you know, I'm sure Anna, you can ask her, and she's totally fluent in the key of C and C-sharp, and yeah, I mean, a, a professional pianist will know all their keys inside out. So that's a good way of practicing being fluent in all these different keys. But there's another reason which is much more profound. I mean, why didn't he write everything in C? Here are 48 pieces in C. That would work. You can transpose everything. Because... He invented a new, well, he didn't invent it, but he, he played with a new kind of tuning the piano, and which is called well-tempered. I mean, that's why it's called well-tempered, which is a compromise between we're going to have transposition and bad chords, which is one extreme, or we're going to have beautiful chords and no transposition. And you say, you know what, I need both, and so I'm going to invent a key, I mean, a, a way of tuning these, these strings that is a compromise now, people don't think of Bach as a compromiser. We think of him as a German, you know, the law is the law. But actually, that's not true. He took these laws, and he said, I'm going to have something that's a compromise between both of them. And why did he do that? Because as a result, when you play something in C sharp, and if you play the same thing in C, even though it's just semitone lower, it's going to sound different. Because now, as a result, every key of the 12 keys is going to have its own flavor, its own personality, which in an all transposed world, that would not be the case. They're all identical, basically, just mm. higher and lower. But higher and lower doesn't change the personality. Mm. In the case of Bach, it changes the actual personality of the key. And, and so when it's in B minor or in D minor, this has true meaning for him. It's not just... Well, I did it because the way you sing, it corresponds to your voice. No, 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 no. On the piano, well, there's no singing there. But he did it because every key had its own particular flavor, mood, if you will. 
And that is mastery of the highest order when you think about it. I mean, especially mm -hmm. if you think you're doing this not just for posterity, for art, but simply as a textbook. I mean, that's a lot of devotion to students. I, mean, I and, know from experience. And I think, do you experience that as a kind of intuitive uh, mathematical sophistication? There's, there's, there's something he's intuiting um, that you can explain in, in other terms. Yes. Yeah, so what's remarkable about Bach more than any... So, I, okay, I'm... Um, yeah, maybe before I go into this, I don't want to forget to say one thing. Okay. And maybe I'll come back to this. When your producer very kindly invited me to be on this show, <laughs> yes. I was very excited. And I said yes immediately and then checked my calendar and I would drop everything because how can I resist talking about Bach? And so, and then I told, I was so excited. I told my family and, and uh, my friends and all of them, without exception, I had the same reaction, which was, why you? <laughs> why did they choose you? And I could not answer. Actually, I, I was, I said, thanks for the question. I thought about this. And uh, so I, I said yes to the producer before they had a ch chance to change their mind. And um, because, in fact, the level of scholarship today about Bach I mean, has never been higher. I mean, in the city of New York alone, mm -hmm. you, you could find half a dozen world experts who should be right now sitting in this chair. And uh, so, anyway, that was, I had to say that. Oh, okay. But, Do you want to say? And now I forget what I was talking about. So, so what, what I, what I love, oh, yeah, because no, we I have these special powers of investigation. The mathematics. Yes, the, yes. The, the, oh, yeah, so yeah. mathematics, I can say something without embarrassing myself. But, um, I think it's fair to say, or at least I can say it, and maybe nobody else will agree, but for me it's fair to say that Western music uh, got the most complex at, at the time of Bach, and that got only simpler. It's only gotten simpler since. And so let's try to unpack what mm -hmm. I mean by this. You know, if you listen to classical music, so I'm being a pedant here, you know, classical music really means from Haydn on to Bach is Baroque, Handel, it's different. But classical music has greatly simplified Bach by developing the concept of, of, of having a tune, having a voice and harmony. So most of Mozart, you know, you have, there's a melody, a beautiful melody, because the guy was a genius, and then there's a gorgeous harmony with all kinds of interesting dynamic and so on. But there's a hierarchy. There is a voice telling you a story, and then there's the accompaniment to make it beautiful. Bach is not like that. There are the concept of voices. So Bach is gonna have six voices, like the Goldberg, uh, you know, variations. Mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, like six voices, which are six people having their own melodies. And the harmony is derived from that. So there's the continual, uh, there's the guy, the organ, who just plays just a few chords here and there. And that, that's so trivial, Bach usually didn't even bother specifying what you're supposed to do on the organ in the cantatas, because it's just, all the action is these melodies that now, this is extremely complicated to do that because there are strict rules because it's so easy to produce bad notes. And so there are mathematical rules that you have. So their mathematics is very helpful in telling you what you're not allowed to do, but it's not helpful in telling you what to do. So there's no computer-generated Baroque music that you actually want to listen to. Mm -hmm. But computer will tell you, like, if you compose a piece of counterpoint, 
we can write computer programs to tell you whether you know what you're doing or not, because there are very strict rules. And, but the complexity of doing this is very hard. So that's similar to jazz in that sense. It's closer to jazz than to, uh, than say, in that sense, Bach is closer to jazz than he is to Mozart. Because in jazz, you also have that concept of voice. And you may have to hear a piece of jazz, maybe like with a, a, a quintet or something, there are five well drums, but several times to hear the different voices. And in Bach, it takes lots of listening to be able to, at some point, say, OK, I will concentrate on the alto. I will concentrate on the soprano. I will concentrate on the bass. And it's very important to do this exercise. There's a famous um, organ, German organ teacher, a very demanding teacher, but absolutely you know, legendary. When he taught his students, his pupils, uh, the organ, so organ is, of course, Bach's music organ. It's just all these voices. Because on the organ, you also have your, your, right. your feet. feet yeah. And then he would say, now I want you to play the five voices and sing the sixth one. Now I want you to sing voice number two and play all the others. And unless you had mastered that, you could not, you know, he would scream at you. And, but to some extent, he was getting to the heart of what Bach is about. It's all these voices together which magically produce this music. And... It's worth listening. So you, you can take Bach and just pick one line and listen to the melody and listen to another one. They're very different. They go together very well, but they're very different. Whereas when you harmonize, if you listen to you know, Simon Garfunkel, or I mean, these are lovely harmonies, uh, but they're trivial harmonies. I mean, you give me the, the, the melody, the cantus firmus, what you call it, and then the melody, I mean, the harmony is pretty, is pretty trivial. You just mm -hmm. get the thirds and just you're done. And... So it's a completely different way of composing music. It was so complicated that people say, come on, let's but get rid of this got, thing. This is just too complicated. To We've got to make it simpler. Yeah. And so it's been simpler since. So, so tell me what you mean when you've written that Bach did not regard himself as an artist, but as a scientist, a cosmologist of music. Yeah, so that also is an interesting, I mean, to me, interesting story about, so maybe we should, briefly talk about, in the 19th century, there was a major change. The concept of art was radically changed. And so to understand this, let's take our time now. When, there's a, when Martin Scorsese has a new movie out, you hear that Martin Scorsese made a movie. And maybe a, a film critic will discover, or maybe not discover for Martin Scorsese, but maybe discover a film director uh, nobody's heard of. So, so we discover new talent, but the artists make, M-A-K, actually make it. A scientist does not make anything. An engineer does, but not a scientist. You, when you study astronomy, you don't make the constellations. You don't make the stars. You just try to understand what's there. And Bach would have never thought of himself as a maker of music. Mm. In fact, when he died, there's an obituary of a guy who really couldn't stand Bach. Bach made quite a few enemies in his life, and he wrote this really trenchant thing that says, well, I said in English, that Bach was a music maker. And that was considered the worst insult. This is like, oh, I'm not a music, he's a music discoverer. So Bach viewed himself as a discoverer of music, not as a maker. There's that so, other analogy, I mean, because mathematicians also talk yeah. about whether, whether equations are invented or discovered. Yes. Yeah. That's a very good... 
in fact, so let's talk about mathematics, let's talk about Newton. So I think it's important to remember that all of these are pre-enlightenment dispositions. And, and Newton is a good example. So here's Newton who invented the calculus, which is very important in science, and with Leibniz. But you know, he invented the calculus. And so you, you can ask, why? why? Why did Newton invent the calculus? And he did because he wanted to do physics. And so you can ask, why did he want to do physics? Now, today, if you ask that question to a physicist, they say, well, because that's what I do. I like physics. I do physics because I like physics. Physics is important. And that'd be the end of the story. But that's not the way it worked. Newton did physics in order to do astronomy. Why did he do astronomy? He did astronomy not because he was interested in the stars, because he wanted to date biblical text and ancient classical text. Mm -hmm. he, because he realized the Greeks got their astronomy wrong. They didn't know that the stars every year moved. The whole thing shifted by a tiny amount, a tiny angle every year. And so when you use the stars to date, you end up making big mistakes. Now, there's some question as to the dating of Newton himself. But that was his motivation. And he became a big hero, not because he invented the calculus. By the time Bach was uh, you know, in function, Newton was considered all across Europe as the ultimate genius. I mean, right, right. Newton equaled right. genius. And, and so uh, uh, Newton, so uh, he wanted to uh, discover the laws of the universe. And he became very famous, very popular in Europe, because he had a very happy explanation for a story which meant a lot to people, which is uh, in Virgil's Aeneid, there's this love story between Dido and Aeneas. And, and it's a beautiful love story, but there's only one problem with it, which is that if you believe the mythology, Dido and Aeneas are 300 years apart. So it's pretty hard to have a love affair when you're 300, when one has been <laughs> dead for 300 years. But Newton managed with this new dating, he managed to say, no, 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 actually, look, I can prove they actually lived at the same time. That made people so happy. Like, you know, for hundreds of years, everybody said, oh, no, that love story is fake. It's fake. It's terrible. He said, no, 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 no. It is true. He also, the the Trojan War, he redid, he redid everything. And um, so he, he became very popular. And in Germany, well, Germany didn't exist at the time, but the Holy Roman Empire, whatever it was, Saxony, uh, Leipzig, where Bach was, was the central point, focal point of Newton ideas. And Bach had a good friend, um, Winkler, who was a physicist and who actually was teaching Newton's ideas. Now, there's no evidence that Bach himself knew the physics of Newton. He was right. too busy doing other things. But he saw Newton, and here, this is not my theory, this is Christoph Wolf, who is a professor at Harvard, who is the master of, the, of that sort of thing, and um, that Bach saw himself as, like Newton, not as the maker of a craft, but as a discoverer, a discoverer of the laws of the musical universe of aesthetics. And so for him, it was a way, you know, um, every piece he wrote, Bach, he signed, you know, S, G, S, D, G, uh, Soli, Dio, you know, to the glory of God alone. I mean, that's what it means, to, to the glory of God alone. The key word is alone, because it's not to the glory of God and me, the composer. Mm -hmm. It's to the glory of God and nobody else. Because the whole point was that he was out to glorify God by showing, by discovering the relation between nature 
and God. That was his only goal. And if you don't understand that, you cannot understand why, for example, he had no interest in posterity, a concept we cannot comprehend. <laughs> right, right. He had, no, he had no interest, for example, that his cantatas, his passion survived. I mean, just think about it. You produce this masterpiece, and then you say, well, it's okay, you can destroy it. That, that's fine, because God will know. God will not forget that I did it, and that's good enough for me. I mean, it's so interesting for me to learn in, in your writing that, that Bach never stopped fine-tuning the Mass in B minor, that, in fact, he never heard the B minor Mass performed in full in his lifetime. Yes. So the Mass in B minor is a special case. Yeah. But though it is true, he, he fine-tuned Fine-tuning was the practice of the day. You would take other people's but, I mean, just, you know, just the, Again, you know, to your point, in terms of how we work now, we are creating something and offering it to the world as per- perfect as it can be and, yes. and thinking about how it was, will survive. And that yes. that was... No. That him, he had a completely was, different mindset. Yeah. And w- which is why also the... Um, like what we just heard. I mean, it's incredibly beautiful music. In German, this is part of something called Klavierübung, and Übung means workout. Yeah. This is a workout. This was written to teach pupils in the next generation. The, the only thing he wanted posterity to keep were his textbooks, because he thought that's very useful for the next generation to learn music. But no concept of that beauty has to stay. And now the Mass in B minor is a special case because he mostly recycled cantatas. I mean, Mass in D minor is a very long thing. He never heard it in his lifetime. It's mostly made of pieces that are recycled from, retooled from older cantatas, except for a few pieces, like the Gloria, the Kyrie, which he wrote just for this. And the reason he did this is because he was trying to get a, a, he was trying to get a basically a job, an approval, stamp of approval from the King of Poland, who, who was at the time the big ruler. And he thought that if I have this you know, if I'm the official court composer of that king, even though I still live in Leipzig, the idiots, I, I call them idiots because he was working for a bunch of idiots. And um, I mean, we know that. There's no doubt about it because there's a famous quote of one of these idiots who say when they hired Bach, they say, well, I guess the best players were the best musicians we couldn't hire, so we, have to, we are stuck with the mediocre ones. That's right. That's right. Bach. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's... You know, that's uh, posterity. Probably he wishes I not remember this, but uh, but then he didn't get the job. Uh, he he took he got the job three years later. Uh, so so it, it's a mass. It's a Catholic mass because because the the king of Poland was Catholic, and that's that's, that's the only reason why it's it's Catholic because he was Lutheran himself. And I think you know. There's a fashionable way to talk about Bach, and not just Bach, but particularly him, to say, uh, you know, he he was a product of Christian princes and uh, um, Christian elites, and if he had lived in another time, he would have written brilliantly, but less religiously. But I, I think the way you hear him and understand him as a human being, um, that orientation he had, um, as you say, of discovering God's music rather than creating something for himself or even for the world yeah. was absolutely central also to the music, the music he made, yeah, yeah. whether he would have said it that way or not. Yes. You know, there's a beautiful com- uh, insight by Richard Taruskin, who is a very, very um, um, highly regarded uh, music historian, 
uh, from Berkeley, who's written this massive uh, history of Western music, which is a remarkable achievement. And he said, the music of Bach is not a medium of beauty, it's a medium of truth. Mm. And this is very interesting because um, within the rules, the strict rules of counterpoint, um, Bach does not care if it does not sound good. Like, he loves dissonances. Mm. He will stick all this chromaticism w within two bars. And now, you know, so sometimes you're, you're wondering, what was he thinking? He was pursuing a certain idea of truth of these rules of music. And whether it sounded good or not, he could not care less. So that, too, is something we're not... He was not trying to give pleasure to people. In fact, people complained they didn't like his music. It was too complicated, too operatic, too showy. He just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, that's just too bad. I'm not working for you. I'm working for God. So complain to God. He was like trying to take dictation from God. So he couldn't care less about, about the common uh, mortals. Although uh, he did draw on folk music. There was, music yeah. was democratic in a way then, and dance and... So yes, at the same yes. time, it's not like he's impervious to no well, Bach to music as a part of ordinary life. Bach loved the opera. I mean, we know this because he used to go to the opera all the time. He never wrote one, although you can argue that the passions are really operas. I mean, they have all the distinctive features of an opera. But he loved the, the Italian tradition uh, of the opera, and he had and he had he he played in coffee houses. He had his his own band with his uh, family. They're very <laughs> right. talented people. Yeah. And, and they would play in... Uh, coffee had just been introduced, or maybe not just, but had become very popular to go to coffee houses. It was a new concept. And he would... Uh, he wrote a coffee cantata, which is very... You know, it's fun. It'd be like pop music now. Hmm. I mean, high-quality pop music. But <laughs> um, So he had that aspect of him. I mean, he was a fun-loving guy. He, he was not... Uh, he got in trouble with the law. I mean, he went to prison. Uh, he got into fights. He was he, he was a real yeah. Human being. So and I not... yeah and I think I mean I think I wanted to pick up on the idea of dissonance, um, dissonance in music and in life, and I, and and I don't want to simplify this. So I want you to push back if I if I am. Um, uh, it, 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 you I mean you say you said that. Um, Dissonance was something that 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 uh, Renaissance musicians had called, uh, you know, had it, 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 that that musicians had even spoken about in divine terms, right? Um, that uh, that our ears, you know, naturally don't like dissonance, although we work with it powerfully. Um, there was there's this half octave dissonance. What is it called? The tri tritone tritone yeah. that Renaissance musicians called the satanic interval. So actually, before we started. Um, Tim played this satanic interval for us, and I, I so I, can, and he recorded. Can we hear it? Okay, so we know that. Um, <laughs> but and I and I think you know I I want to hear a little bit more about how you know how Bach worked with dissonance, and that's. You know, here, here's something very interesting you wrote, that think of dissonance as, and you said, you didn't say the F word, but I'm going to say the F word, this is public radio, think of dissonance as the F word in comedy, in comedy used to transgress, to liberate, to ridicule, to humanize, to bring down to earth, to change topics. Um, 
you are, it, it feels to me as much as you sense this high mathematical sophistication in Bach, you, you most of all value him and are captivated by him as this most human of composers. Somebody who lost perhaps 10 children in his lifetime, who lost his wife. Um, talk a little bit about how he worked with dissonance uh, in life and in music and in music as an expression of a real, complex, messy life. Yeah, so there are two. He's very surprising. For example, at, at the end of this show, we're going to hear the Chacon, which is this very remarkable piece at the end of a suite made of small, <coughs> not-too-long little pieces that are dances. The Chacon is a dance, but it's, it's longer than all of the other uh, movements combined. It seems like he added it on because he went on a trip, and he came back, and his wife was dead. She was buried already, actually, in those days. Trips took a long time, and he was devastated by this. and And he wrote music. He wrote a dance. Now it's, it's very sad music too, but it's. You would think, why well, not? You write a funeral march or something, you know. But that's not the way he was. I mean, that's not the way. There's this, you know, in the in the Saint John's Passion, at the very end, the next to last movement, is this lullaby, Hood Volp, you know, resting rest well where he's singing over the tomb of Jesus and and you would think I mean, this is the, the most solemn moment in the Christian calendar of the year and he has just has a little lullaby it's very sweet very gentle very like that's not the way we would think right. and so how what's going on there what's happening and you know I like to think to simplify things that as opposed to other composers, Bach talks, targets the very young, the child, and people of a certain age, like me, <laughs> and, and tries to leave out the middle. And what I mean by this is that there are all kinds of mental, psychological dispositions from the opera that he, he totally shunned. Uh, envy, greed, lust, jealousy. I mean, this is the bread and butter of the opera. He never went there. He had no interest in that. Or, but so, well, it's not just interest, but that was just not his calling. His music tries to express things like awe, grace, thanks, fear, trepidation, hope. All kinds of sentiments a child can have and an older person can have, but not of this sexual nonsense in the middle. And so in that sense, in that sense, he thinks of death very differently from, well, also from his, his own experience. I mean, he lost his parents when he was, when he was uh, before he was 10. He, he, was, he lost both of his parents, and then he lost half of his children. He lost 10 children. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these are different, uh, different types, different circumstances. And, and so he, for us, it can be very surprising to see these reactions. Right, and but so, I, mean, I think your point is he works in a very complicated way with that. One doesn't sense he didn't feel things deeply, oh, no. right? The no, opposite. On the contrary. I mean, you can tell from his music that his, his emotion is raw. I mean, it is so controlled, but it is so profound. Right. This is a man who truly grieves. I mean, you'll hear the Chacon. It's a dance, but it's a grieving dance. I mean, I know it seems like a paradox, but it's extremely moving uh, of somebody who clearly has enormous feeling. And yet, it's, it's very controlled. So if I can go back 
quickly to this Taroskin point about truth. I find this very interesting because I, I thought a lot about this. And wh- wh- about which? The... So Taroskin say Bach is not about beauty. Oh, yes, He's but about, about truth. truth. Well, you say, well, truth of what? Well, you know, of, of course, if you think of Newton, truth of God's truth. So the, the universe, so the musical universe. So that makes sense. But I'd like to take this even further, you know, some historical nonsense, if you will, but I still believe there's merit to it, so let me try this. On, um, on, and um, which is that, you know, Immanuel Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant is a good half century, 50 years after Bach. So there's clearly Bach was not influenced by somebody who lived 50 years later. There's no doubt about that. But Kant uh, had a very interesting take on, on freedom. And, uh, and this will connect to this. So he listened to Hume and he said, Hume's got it exactly wrong. So Hume said that passions are, I mean, that reason is the slave and must be and ought to be the slave to our passions. Uh, reason is simply the means by which passion gets uh, us from A to B. And Kant thought about this and said this, this is unacceptable. And the reason it's unacceptable because Kant placed freedom at the beginning of his agenda. So, you know, for most people, when you say, what does it mean to be free? They might say something like this. Well, it's to be able to do what we want. So if you're in prison, the many things you want, but you're not able to do them, so you're not free. So in that sentence, the key word is able. To be able, capital able, mm-hmm. to do what we want. And Kant said this is all wrong. The key word is want. It's not able. And so what he meant by this is that he said, well, for example, well, he didn't say this. I said it, but, but you'll get the point. Suppose that you want to eat ice cream, uh, vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream, and, and you choose freely to have chocolate because you prefer chocolate. Well, that's an act of freedom. And Kant would say, no way. There is no freedom at all in there because you chose chocolate because you prefer chocolate, but you didn't choose to prefer chocolate. You just happen <laughs> to prefer chocolate. That preference comes from outside. It does not come from you. Mm. And for Kant, freedom has to come from inside. And the only thing that comes from inside is reason, or so he thought. And so, now, the, how do we uh, go back to this, uh, to this disposition of Bach, which is that I think beyond truth, he also wanted to have freedom in the following sense. He put all these rules so that once you are within the rules, it allows you to fly very, very high, right. and then you can be free. You, you're not tied to, so he's not gonna do lust and sex. That's, these are too easy, and it, it takes your music into things where you, you don't have a freedom because your emotions are taking you somewhere. You're not a free person. So he's thinking that I'm gonna have these very complicated rules Think of it as a figure skater. A figure skater has to learn all these extremely complicated rules because otherwise they fall. If they don't master all these complicated techniques, they cannot do anything because they keep on falling. But once they have done that, they can go to the Olympics and then get the gold medal because their freedom has been judged to be more expressive than somebody else's freedom, and that's why they get the gold medal. But the point is that in order to get that freedom, first they had to get all these rules. Because, so he would have been horrified by a lot of pop music where basically the first time you hear is the emotion. It's like, 
I'm very mad. Then you have to have something. I said, well, no, it doesn't work like this. Because your anger is driving your music. But that's not freedom. Because so, you're not free yeah. to be angry. And so I think he was actually looking for a medium of truth and freedom. Ironically. So, and, and when you say, when you, when you wrote... Um, he doesn't like Ellington. He doesn't do despair. I mean, what you mean is he chooses not to end to let despair yeah. have the last word or the last note. Yeah. I, I, so for us, it's very hard to tell because we, you know, we were not there, and it's just so hard to imagine how one could cope with such horrible tragedies, on and on and on and on. And so, um, but I think his faith was so big that despair for him would have been sinful. It's like, would it have been self-indulgence to despair just simply to believe in myself more than I believe in God? Mm. Because he still believed that God was looking out for him. I mean, it's really, one wonders, but I mean, one would wonder given the circumstances, but, uh, but he really believed that. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's how you had to be in order to survive in, in those days. Mm. It's, uh, I don't know. Okay, so I'm going to do my radio thing here. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a live conversation with computer scientist Bernard Chazelle, we're discussing the cosmology of Johann Sebastian Bach at the Green Space in New York as part of Bach Stock, WQXR's month-long festival celebrating the music, life, and times of Bach. We, we, this hour is quickly going by. Talk to me. I... Um, sense, um, and again, I may be making this up, so tell me if I am, but there's something in your writing, there's something about, um, there's a, there's a consonance or, or, or some kind of kinship between the universality of music for you, maybe, and the universality of code. Is that right? Oh, am I making that up? Computer code? Yeah. I never thought thought of that, but... (laughs) But why not? Well, it seems to me that the, it seems to me that those are those are qualities that you that you love and revere and play with, and and like, and no, imaginatively engaging. You don't care that much about code. I mean, I care about mathematics. Code is. Okay. Well, we don't have to get mm-hmm. to go there. But but if I something somewhat related, perhaps I don't know. It's what I find very strange is this, that I think what's magnificent about Bach is that you know, when you listen to this music and it moves you so much, I mean, you're just a bunch of sound waves going crashing into your ear and you have to contain, you see this emotion bubbling up, you start seeing like, te- you know, tearing up and say, what's going on? These are just sounds crashing into my ear. What's going on in here? So of course you can say, well, it's just Bach, he's a genius. You know, that's just the way it works. No, not so easy. I have to have the ability in my brain to create that emotion. I mean, all Bach is doing is sending a bunch of wave of sound waves. I have to be able, when I say I, I mean everybody. And so I'm always like, there's something extremely optimistic and really almost dizzying when you hear something and it moves you so intensely inside and you realize, but this is you who is being moved. Nobody's forcing this inside you. So... In your brain, there must be this reservoir of beauty, which most often is untapped, goes untapped. But if you can't find it with the right spotlight, 
Then you discover this amazing, uh, you know, uh, co you know, consonances or dissonances, or this amazing uh, 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 narrative story inside you. So I don't want to make this solipsistic. I'm not saying you know we have our own music and so on, but I still think there's something completely remarkable that we are capable of appreciating this to that level. To me, this surprises me more than, say, a poem or something, because a poem, often you know where it comes from, because there's a story. You relate to events in your life. You, this you, moves you, you because You see what is, is happening. You know you what is happening. You see what's happening because you can think of people. In your memories, you can think of events. Right. There's this whole thing. Music, you have no idea. Where, why am I being moved? It's just a bunch of notes. What's going on? It's like a ghost is taking over, and yet it's all inside you. And so I think if there's a message for all this is that all these people out there who have no beauty in, or so little beauty in their lives and who think that basically it's just everything is ugly and maybe most of it for them is ugly, that they have to know that there is this possibility just inside them. Mm -hmm. There's this mm -hmm. enormous gold mine that then can be revealed. And of course, Bach is not the only one. There are others. Everybody has to find their own way. But I really think that it's wrong. It's really wrong to say, well, I'm just a vessel and the genius out there is just, well, yeah, but that's too easy. I think we have to have more self-respect and saying that actually, you know, there's something wonderful inside me. And I think we should be grateful and, and appreciate that and, mm. and, and give others an opportunity to discover that in themselves, mm. sort of those aesthetic virtues. So. You, you have said that you dislike concert halls, that concert halls are like secular churches and no one is allowed to express emotion unless they're prompted and you're such a peasant if you applaud at the yeah. wrong time. Yeah. And that in fact that's not the way it worked when this music was being created, that it was much rowdier. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I actually think, uh, I think churches used to be rowdier too. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think we're stuck with this, but it's, it's really tragic. I mean... First of all, there are two things going on here. First of all, the concept of playing dead composers is fairly recent. It's 19th century. Before the 19th century, you only play. Why did Bach have to write music every single week? They could have played old Palestrina music until the people dropped. I mean, there are tons of music to play. You didn't have to compose something. But you had to, to play something that, that was fresh. You, you would never play dead music, dead people music. Now, today, you go to a concert hall, and everybody has to behave, and the composers, all, all the good ones are dead. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. I mean, okay, I know, we know, we know, you don't mean that. This okay. is blip. Yeah. What I'm saying is, they want you to believe, they want you to believe that everybody is good, you know, they're all dead, and we're gonna worship, and as we should, I mean. So now the concert hall is a museum, or like a chapel or something like this, so I mean, that's what I love about jazz, because that's just not the way, or let's hope, it's never the way. Go to a jazz club, and it seems living. This is a living, you know, expression, and, and I think that's something that's re really, really lost. In um, uh, by the way, classical music is not, and maybe people will will contradict me, but but by and large, classical music there's so much respect for the art form that say improvisation is not encouraged. But this is crazy. I mean, Beethoven was probably the biggest improviser ever. Bach could improvise for hours at the organ. It's not just that he could. That is the way they did music. It was just to improvise, to change. Uh, they used to take other people's music. And that's how you learn 
your, your craft is by taking other people's music and rewriting it. Take this Vivaldi concerto and make it better. That was perfectly accepted. I mean, that was the way people did things. They didn't worry about intellectual rights. They didn't have well, right, yeah. I gotta get the power, I'm gonna be sued because, you know, yeah. this is, it was, it was living. It was mm -hmm. like people talk. We don't worry that I'm, the sentence I'm just saying has been said before and I have to clear it with my lawyer or something. And so maybe there's something, I don't know, has been lost. Yeah. Um, this, this lovely line of yours that Bach, the most human of all composers, gets to your soul through the body. I mean, that, you know, that's, that, that's, that's an example, I think, of something that, um, you know, that, that kind of thing gets said, but somehow it's a very beautiful poetic sentence and it's worth saying again and repeating. Um, I wonder if there's something for you in the experience of Bach that captures um, for you what maybe, you know, religion should be. Or I don't know if, if you are religious now or if spirituality is a word you use in any way. Um, but how, how does Bach express um, that, that thing, that aspect of humanity to you? So I think it expresses in two ways. In one way, it is so human. It touches your, your body. It touches your soul, but via your body. If, if you don't feel like crying, you're not appreciating Bach. It has to be physical. Right. It's not intellectual, okay? And so there's that. But there's also... When you face excellence, you know, you watch the Olympics, you watch the Super Bowl, you watch tennis, you watch whatever is your thing. And there's something really, uh, there's a particular pleasure in seeing something done extremely well, okay? Just this level of perfection. And so when you see Bach, you see the ultimate expression of this. There's something strange because I think there's little, very little disagreement that Bach is the best composer of written music, okay, I insist on written music, and um, that's not true of any other field. There is no best mathematician that has people agree upon, there's no best painter, there's no best writer, there's no best poet. No, there are lots of great, but there's no, but, but, but Bach completely towers over uh, anybody else, and and so when you listen to this, you say, but where is this coming from? So you would think this is going to be so distant, an alien, because it's so great. It's like the sun. You can't look at it. But it's like the sun, except you can actually wallow in it. You can just watch it and let it be devoured by it. And it's this paradox that does not happen. It's not the greatness that say, okay, all right, you know, yeah, yeah, you're great. I get that point, you know, and now let, just let me go away. It's, it's a greatness that's very inviting. And so in that sense, there's something a bit religious because you, it's like seeing a mountain. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's coming from. I, I don't know how somebody could be Bach. So, the, well, there was somebody Bach, so obviously that's the, an existence uh, <laughs> uh, proof. But there is this mystery. Now, now, this man virtually spent no time composing. This is so hard to believe. A cantata is about the size of a Beatles no. album. <laughs> he, he virtually had just a couple of hours to compose the music. Oh, you mean, any, but, he, but, he, but he composed every day, every day. No, 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 but most day was spent copying rehearsing, okay. practicing, getting his musicians, the time he had to actually think, well, now, what's the melody like, was just a few hours to write something of the size of you know, an entire Beatles album. Actually, it's more music than that. 
You know, Christoph Wolf, uh, Wolf, I should say, German pronunciation, says, you know, the, the St. Matthew Passion, he probably wrote in two, three weeks. You say, you know, today a professional composer would have to take a three-year leave of absence <laughs> to write something of this, of course, not something as good, that's impossible, but something of that scale would take three years for a professional composer. You do it in, you know, in two, three weeks. It's incomprehensible because science does not work like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, all scientists, the greatest scientists, worked on one idea extremely hard. Extre mm -hmm. They totally were possessed by it for years and years. There's no, like you wake up and then E equals MC squared. And it doesn't work like that. <laughs> but for a while, it seems to have worked like that. But, and that's but, a mystery. Well, right. But there is also something in him... Um, in his work ethic was also incredible, right? I mean, there was yeah. there was a way in which he did, yes. he, he defied human limitations. Yes. I mean, it's almost like he'd read Malcolm Gladwell all the way <laughs> yeah, right, back then. Yeah. Um, so I mean, there, I mean, yes, it's mysterious, but there's but there's also a sense in which um, he was so invested, day hour, you know, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, year after year. Yes, and you know, in those days, false. It's, it is that human. False modesty was not something you know people were doing, and uh, Barry is quoting several times saying that uh, that anybody who works as hard as I do will compose music that every bit as good. Now you would think, yeah, sure, but no, there's evidence that he really believed that, yeah. and to him, to work very hard was to glorify God because to be lazy would be insulting God. So his yeah. work ethics was not just that that's the way he was brought up. That's not true. It's because it was part of his agenda. It was part of his belief system. Yes. I want to just ask you one final question, and, and I do want to return to the computer scientist in you, if he has anything more to say. Um, just just this, <laughs> this life that you spend um, uh, uh, with algorithm, with, uh, with music, um, with a passion for both of these things, how, how do these things together shape um, your sense as, as it has evolved of what it means to be human? So I think uh, this, the thing I'll say about mathematics is that it's my case, but it's the case of every practicing mathematician I know, that we do it for aesthetic reasons. I know it's hard for people to believe how this could be true, but the only thing that drives us is the beauty of the discovery of these Right. So for you, it's the opposite. It's not truth. It is about beauty. <laughs> or beauty and truth are intertwined. Yes. In this case, the, yeah, because in mathematics... They're absolutely identical. No, they're not identical. I mean, beauty is a subset of truth. If it's not true, it's ugly, by definition, right, in mathematics. Right. But, but, and some true mathematics is not beautiful. But, but some mathematics that is true, and it has to be true. Without truth, there's no beauty. Uh, what gets people up in the morning and work hard is, and mathematics is very hard. I mean, I, I know it's a truism to say that, but it's something that you really have to apply yourself for years and years. And it's what moves us is is really the sense of having structure, discovering a universe that's totally beyond us, uh, that you you just don't know. There must be a platonic reality somewhere out there, and because this is so, in that sense, it's similar to Bach because it's not driven by emotion. Mathematics has no anger. There's no. I mean, yeah, there's envy in the sociology, but but the mathematics <laughs> itself, a theorem is a theorem. It's not, and it's not really subjective. Also. A beautiful theorem is beautiful for every mathematician. There's no mm -hmm. oh, a school of mathematics where we don't like this kind of theorem. No, there's no such thing. People can recognize beauty 
just like anybody with a brain will recognize Bach's music is gorgeous, I think. I hope. <laughs> okay. Well, I think everyone here understands why I invited you to be the person we spoke with tonight. Um, and now I want to introduce uh, a little bit more music from Bach, which I think we will hear with new ears. Um, this time for violin, Tim Fain is known for electrifying performances on screen and off uh, and in the film Black Swan. He also plays in concert halls all over the world, often accompanying composer, pianist Philip Glass, because there are living composers, <laughs> and here in New York City, on stage at Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, and the 92nd Street Y. So please welcome Tim Fain, who will perform the Chacon from Bach's Partita for violin number two.
Thank you, Tim Fain. An amazing performance. For the Chacon from Bach's Partita number two in G minor. Wow. So I want to thank Tim so much. I want to thank Anna Polanska before for her amazing uh, Partita as well. And a special thanks to Bernard Chazelle, Krista Tippett for this very special taping of On Being from the Drone Green Performance Space. Thank you both so much. An incredible conversation. Um, this is uh, the uh, On Being uh, that uh, they were taping, were taping tonight. It's going to be on Krista's website as of November 13th and be on WNYC November 15th and 16th, so next weekend. So stay tuned for that. Um, want to thank our exclusive sponsor of Barkstock, the New York Presbyterian Hospital. Amazing things are happening here. And with our gratitude to the Green Space and the WQXR Production Studios, thank you so much for being here. Go, uh, go home safely. Thank you very much.